Good morning, everyone. My name is Amy Winkle. I am the rector here at Emmanuel, and so glad that we get to be together today to worship in the house of the Lord um, and get to, to continue to walk through Advent together. Um, I feel like we're in the second week of Advent, and there's, still, there's already so much to celebrate. And so looking forward to how we continue to journey together. Um, just want to mention, like this, this past Monday in Advent morning prayer, and Tuesday as well um, on Zoom, just had some really great time um, of sitting with the Lord and being able to, to pray together. Um, and so I just um, invite you, if, that, if you have space um, to, to do that in person, to, to come out and, and to be able to do that. Uh, we look forward to being able to make space. So that's what we're talking about like during Advent, is making space for Jesus as he comes toward us. Um, and so whatever ways that we might be able to do that. Last week we were, we were waiting, and so we, we sat in vigil, waiting for the light to come. Um, this week we're going to be talking about listening and engaging in prayer of examine, whereby we are sitting and examining our lives to see where it is that, that Jesus is, is working and active, where he is present um, just in our day-to-day. And so um, I would invite you into that space um, just to be able to, to make space for Jesus in this, in this kind of crazy busy season that we're in. Um, when I was in seminary, I remember at one point hearing a quote by Martin Luther where he said something like, I'm, I'm too busy not to pray. And I remember feeling very annoyed by that um, because it is like, I am too busy, you know, uh, at times to pray. And that thought that like we are too busy not to pray is actually, as I have continued on my, my journey with the Lord, realized that is more and more true. And so um, I just want to say to you, like, if the, if the enemy of your soul is saying, I'm just, you're, I'm, you're too busy and you don't have time, even more so, would you carve out some time, whether it's like coming to morning prayer or doing so on your own, carve out some space um, to sit and to, to make space for Jesus, because like, that's what it's all about, y'all. You know, like we can get up here and I can say a lot of words, but like until we really sit in the presence of Jesus, like, you know, like things are not going to be, not going to change, not going to be different. And so I don't know about for you, but like, I want to feel Jesus's presence this Advent. Um, I want to experience him and what he has for me. And so I invite you into that as well, whatever, however you might be able to engage in your schedule. So as we've said, this is the second Sunday of Advent. Um, oh, wait, one more celebration I wanted to make, sorry, um, is that we had our kids pageant last night um, and got to, to see our, our wonderful and cute kids um, do like tell the story of Jesus coming to us, which was so wonderful, and, um, and no cows were hurt in the midst of it. I just want to say that. We had some very excited shepherds um, who had like some, uh, you know, weapons. Um, <laughs> Becky has pictures, so it could be fun um, if you want to see that. But just so glad to have that space together to get to um, hear, the, hear the story of Jesus coming to us and, and having our kids um, speak it to us, to be prophets for us um, is such a great blessing. All right, so we are going to continue our study in the book of Micah today. Um, and so I just want to warn you on the front end that I'm going all Old Testament on you today. Um, I am, I'm doing Old Testament teacher thing. So um, just be prepared uh, as we jump into the text together. So we're going to be in Micah 5, starting in verse 2 and going to, to verse 5. So let's read together and we'll pray and then we will jump into the text. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. 
Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that comes to us. And just as we prayed in our colic this morning, that the, the Holy Scriptures come and are able to instruct us um, and mold us, would you come, come into, into this time, God, and use your word to enliven our hearts, use your word to comfort our hearts, use your word to convict our hearts, Lord. Holy Spirit, we submit ourselves to you. And we pray, God, that, th- that your word might go forth. And the Holy Spirit, you may work in and among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we talked a little bit about Micah um, and how he is situated outside of Jerusalem, um, probably in the countryside. And yet, even though he's like not in the hub of all that is happening, he is um, speaking critique to the leaders in Jerusalem, trying to talk to them and call them back to the way of Yahweh. So in this part of our text, we see a contrast that is happening. So in verse 1, which we didn't actually read, but like when you back up just a little bit, um, he talks about the, that there being a, a, a wall around them, a siege is laid against us, and with a rod they strike the ruler of Israel upon the cheek. So this idea that there is some kind of like siege that's coming against Jerusalem, whether it's coming or it's already come, and in the midst of that, the rulers of the day are being struck against on their cheek. This description of Jerusalem being seized upon and the, the ruler being attacked and, and humiliated is um, basically kind of what Micah is saying is, um, is a reality. Either is coming or has come. We don't actually know the timing, but, um, but he's laying it out here for us, this description. So then starting in verse 2, what we see is him then shift and give a contrast to a different type of ruler, another ruler who will lead Israel. And with this text, with the imagery of this text and what Micah, the words he's using and the, and the, the um, image that he's, he's laying out for us, what he's trying to do is pull us back toward David. That even though it is the Davidic line, the sons of David that are ruling in Jerusalem at this time and sitting in power, they are not living in the way of Yahweh. Um, they've gone astray and they're not following after God's heart as their ancestor David had done. And so what Micah is doing then is Micah is looking for something else. He says, let's go back to the beginning and let's start this thing over again. And so I want to pull a few of the images out from this passage um, that I think are helpful as a way of looking at what's going on here, namely the the image of, of Bethlehem and the image of the shepherd. And when we hear those terms in our mind, we like immediately go back to the nativity, right? And, and rightly so. Like we see it kind of laying out against us, like the like Bethlehem. Yep, 
Shepherds, yep. You know, like we, that's where our mind wants to go. But before we go there, what I want us to do is to go back and to think about what these images would have meant for Micah um, and, his, and the people of his day. So first, let's talk about Bethlehem, um, this, this place of Bethlehem. Micah refers to it as a little clan. Um, could be because the size itself is small, um, but also small in significance, especially when you look at it in contrast to Jerusalem. So if Jerusalem of this day is where like all the stuff is happening, nobody's talking about Bethlehem. And yet Micah is calling our attention there to say, let's pay attention. And so the question then becomes, what has happened in Bethlehem previously that would make him look back there? So there are a couple of times that Bethlehem comes up in in the scriptures, one being at the time in, in Genesis um, with the wife of Jacob, known as Rachel, who gave birth, actually, to their youngest son, Benjamin, um, and then died in childbirth. And she was actually buried here in Bethlehem. And so that's one part, that's one note um, of, of something that has occurred in Bethlehem. But most notably is that it is the home of David. Um, it is the place where um, David came from and where he was anointed. And so I want us to like actually look at this particular text in 1 Samuel 16 because we don't read 1 Samuel 16 very often. And so it's good to, to kind of read it and to hear the words of Scripture itself of how David himself was call, called and anointed. So what's happening in this passage is this, is that Saul, King Saul is sitting on the throne and yet the Lord has determined that Saul is no longer fit to be king. And so, so the word of, of Yahweh comes to Samuel and to the prophet and says, go to Bethlehem because I want to anoint a new king. And so we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel, um, starting with verse, uh, in 16, starting with verse 4, um, to kind of hear the words of what happened in this anointing of David. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded him, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely his anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not look and nor see. Um, for the Lord does not see mortals. Uh, no, sorry, let's try again. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, "Neither has the Lord chosen this one." And then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, "Neither has the Lord chosen this one." Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send him and bring him forth, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. 
And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel then sent out and went to Ramah. This is, so this is the place, this is the scene that Micah is pointing us back to. This point in time to where David, the youngest son and the shepherd, is anointed as king over all of Israel. The unexpected one, right? Like all the brothers are kind of going before Samuel and he's like thinking, oh, I bet it's this one. Oh, I bet it's this one. But it's not until he gets to the youngest, to that, the one who is tending the sheep, that the Lord says, this is the one. And so this brings us to the image of the shepherd. And again, an allusion to David. The idea of a shepherd was common a common way to talk about rulers in the text. It was definitely an expectation of Yahweh of how someone should rule. When we look back in the story of, um, of the Old Testament, we see a long line of shepherds. We see Joseph was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Um, and David himself was a shepherd. Why? It seems to be that this type of of um, living, this way of living is somehow a training ground for those who are going to lead the people of God. But when we stop to like think about it, like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Like there's a lot of other ways to, to train someone to take on the mantle of leading a whole group of people. And yet God keeps coming back time and time again to this image of a shepherd. And somehow this is the training ground by which the, the leaders of Israel are made manifest. And it even goes further than that in the sense that this idea of a shepherd king is actually mirroring something in the character of God himself to the point that in Psalm 23, we see the, the, um, the psalmist refer to the Lord himself as a shepherd. That there's a sense that this, um, this human way of being this human vocation is also pointing to something about the character of God, to the divine shepherd. So that by the time we get to the prophetic literature, where we are here with Micah and in other prophets as well, this imagery of the shepherd keeps showing up over and over and over again. Jeremiah and Ezekiel also pulling on this idea of the, the leaders being shepherds over the people. And yet, as we have already read in the prophetic literature, this idea that the leaders are falling down on the job, that they're not living up to their role. But what is their role? To be a shepherd of the people. So look at, let's look at the words of Ezekiel 34 and this kind of indictment that's going out through the prophet from the Lord against the leaders. He says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Mortal, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fattened calves, and you did, but you did not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak, you have not healed the sick, you have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays. You have not sought the lost, but with force and harshness you have ruled them. 
So this is the, the word that, of the Lord that's going out against the leaders of the day, of what they, they have been in it for themselves. They have been using their power in a way that they are, is not godly, has not been mirrored to them in the, in the character of God. And so because of that, Yahweh says, I myself then am going to shepherd them. I will be their shepherd. So if we go down a few verses to verse 14, he says, I will feed them with good pasture. And the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And they shall feed on rich pasture on mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strays. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. So here we see the shepherd imagery and what it means to be a ruler in Israel, one who has been appointed and approved by Yahweh. But it isn't just for the leaders, but it's also an image of Yahweh himself, of God himself. So with this idea in mind and kind of this background, this idea around Bethlehem, around shepherds who are leaders and how they tend to rule, when we come back to Micah, what is it that we see? We see him saying that the rulers of Jerusalem have lost the script and it's time to go back to the basics. What is happening right now is not working and is not what God has ordained. And so therefore, let's go back to Bethlehem, he says, where David was anointed and began to rule as king. Let's find a leader who will stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of God. So I want us to like sit in this idea of the imagery of the shepherd. And again, kind of ask the question like, of all the, the types of leaders and all like the, the models we could look toward, why is this model of a shepherd the one that God keeps bringing up over and over and over again? It's not one of weakness, but yet what I see it holding together is this idea of tending to and caring for the sheep while also defending and fighting off the enemies of the sheep. Holding together this idea of defending and caring, a sense of strength and of care that go together, that are not mutually exclusive. Now, sometimes when we see images of, of like Jesus as the good shepherd with, with the lamb, you know, like a little lamb that he's, he's holding and, and, and caring for, which is a very true image. And yet it's not the full picture of what we know a shepherd to be. What we also know about a shepherd is that a shepherd has to be very strong and be able to defend the sheep, care for them, yes, and also defend. And so we hear, even from the mouth of David himself, when he's going out to fight Goliath, and they're looking at him, and they're like, you're like a little boy. Like, why in the world would you be able to defend us against this big old dude who's coming against us? And what is it that David says in response? David says, well, I've killed a bear, and I've killed a lion, so that they didn't take my sheep. Again, this idea of this role of being a shepherd as a way of preparing him to go forth and to, like, to defend the people. 
to take on the things that are coming against them that they can't do for themselves. And so he feels prepared to protect the sheep, to go out in such a way to defend them, to go out before them. And what that does, what the shepherd does in his role as being able to um, care for the sheep while also defending the sheep, is that he's able to bring security and peace to the flock. So that is why Micah then turns to say that when the true shepherd is in their midst, that they will live secure, he says. And he says of the shepherd, and he shall be one of peace. The rule of David as the shepherd king that mirrors the rule of Yahweh. One who rules in might and strength, but also in care of the flock. A ruler who's not there just for their own benefit, for their own aggrandizement, but one who seeks to care for the flock, to defend them from predators, and to bring about security and peace. And so it's this idea of a true shepherd king that we see laid out here in Micah, who is ruling and reigning in Israel, is what they are waiting for in the time of Jesus. Israel's waiting for one who will care for them and defend them, who will defeat their enemies, and who will bring about security and peace. And so as we continue our journey through Advent and as we're headed toward the nativity, right, what we see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this hope, that he is the shepherd king, bringing together the divine and the human shepherd who brings true security and peace to our lives and to this world. So what I want us to be able to do today with this idea of the sheep, the shepherd, who is coming into our midst, the true shepherd who is meant to care for us and also to defend and fight our enemies. What I want us to be able to ask is what does peace look like? That it is the second Sunday of Advent when we talk about peace. This is part of like our, our rhythm and, and what we know that this season is meant to call our attention to. That what it is is that the reality is that we all are longing for peace in some kind of way within ourselves, within our families, within our communities. And what other time besides the holidays <laughs> do we start thinking about peace? <laughs> You know, like when we're supposed to be able to come together um, and, and celebrate holidays, and yet sometimes it doesn't feel peaceful at all. And so to be able to like sit in this space and to say, what in the world is peace anyway? What is it that we are contending for? What is it that we're hoping for when we say peace so y'all know I've talked about in the past, and I'll bring it up again. I am an Enneagram 9 um, who was a peacemaker, right? But what that means um, is, for those of us who live in this space, is like a cheap kind of peace, okay? Um, it, is, um, it is not a well-fought-for peace. It is a peace that is like, let's just act like everything is okay. It's very surface level. When you're not healthy, I'll just say that. Um, but th that's the reality. And so I spent, have spent a lot of years feeling very restless within my heart, looking and longing for peace when I got really honest about it. 
And yet, at the same time, on the surface, being like the false prophet saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. I don't know what that looks like for you, but that's what I have, I have dealt with within myself, is being one who is able to say, hey, we're all at peace here. But if you get much under the surface, restlessness is there. A lack of peace is there. Avoiding and not wanting to confront myself or other people. Maybe that's not your story. Maybe you're not afraid of conflict or not afraid of like stirring stuff up. But what I would ask for you is, even in the midst of stirring things up and confronting, what does peace look like? What is the peace that you're striving for? It's a question that we all have to ask. What is the purpose of peace? Why do we want it? What is it that we are contending for? So as I've moved along in my life and realized that like this whole idea of false peace, like the peace, peace, where there is no peace, it really doesn't work. Um, and that I was like hindering myself in the work of the Lord within me, but also like in my ability to have true relationship. In the midst of kind of struggling through that, um, the Lord um, revealed to me this, this quote by Martin Luther King, which was very helpful for me. To say true peace is not merely the absence of tension, but it is the presence of justice. True peace is not merely the absence of tension, but it is the presence of justice. And I think he's getting here at this image of a shepherd who brings care, but also defends and wants to make things right. That there's this reality within each one of us that if we want true peace, like the peace that's like under the surface and not just a superficial kind of peace, there is a contending for that peace that must happen. It doesn't come easily, but it comes from being willing to name truth. It comes from being willing to let the Holy Spirit dig into us and shake up the things that are not of Him. It is the Holy Spirit digging into us and saying, what is it in this relationship that I need to contend for, that I need to fight for? Where, what is it in this world that we are meant to contend for when it comes to peace? Where we are meant to, to speak truth and to work toward peace among our neighbors? This is the call of Advent for peace. In the midst of Advent, what, we're, what we are acknowledging is that we need a Savior. A Savior who can bring true peace into our lives. Not just a superficial kind of peace, but one that gets beneath the surface and makes us realize that we can't do this thing by ourselves. There is no way that you or I can bring peace without the Spirit of the Lord with us. Because He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Shepherd King who is divine and human, who can defend His sheep from the enemy of our souls. He wants to keep us enslaved in sin and death. And the good news, folks, is that Jesus has come to set us free. To set us free within ourselves from the sin and the hurt and the pain that keep us enslaved. But he's also come to set us free 
to set us free to be peacemakers in our community, in our families, and in our world, who also need to be set free from the power of sin and death. So I want to ask us this question. As we continue on our journey through Advent, what I want you to ask yourself is, what is the true peace that you seek? Like when you sit in the presence of Jesus and admit the fact that you may not feel it, that you may feel a sense of restlessness, that something doesn't feel right, when we're really, really willing to get honest before God, what is the peace that you want, that, you're, that you seek, that you want to contend for? What do you pray that the shepherd king would do within your own heart that you can't do for yourself? What would you pray that the shepherd king would do within your family that, to be honest, you're not really sure what, what to do? What is it that, you would, that we would pray that the shepherd king would do within our world to bring peace, true peace, Because, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but we need it. And we need Jesus to make it happen. How might we be peacemakers with him who contend for true peace? Not just for the absence of tension, but for things to truly be set right. May that be our prayer in Advent. And may we contend for his peace. In Jesus' name, let's pray. God, I pray that we would not settle for a false sense of peace, but that, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the, the willingness to contend for a true peace. A peace that might shake our hearts in such a way that the things that are not of you would fall away. The things that we really want to grasp onto and not let go of would be released. God, I pray for our families, our extended families, Lord, where there may not be peace. We need you, Jesus, your grace and your wisdom to know how to be peacemakers. And God, in a world that's bent toward conflict, that's bent toward destruction. Would you help us to be your peacemakers, God? That our feet would be covered with peace that bring the good news of you. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so, God, would you give us vision of that, of what that looks like? 
Help us to contend for peace as we walk through Advent, Lord, knowing that you are our Prince of Peace. And we just want more and more of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.